Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today, I'm actually going to be combining a couple of different thinkers, uh, mainly because I want to wrap up season two and go back into season one, because I really feel we need to start doing more in depth uh, with these podcasts and also get more of the groundwork down, because everything that comes later in philosophy is really built on things that came earlier. So the next season, we're going to be going into uh, ancient philosophy. We're actually going to start ancient philosophy and ancient literature. We're actually going to start with Chinese philosophy and literature. Uh, and then we'll probably move on from there to Indian philosophy and literature and so forth. Uh, Middle Eastern, uh, African. We're going to try to hit a lot of different traditions, but I'm going to try to keep everything next season in the ancient world. Uh, the latest any of the podcasts will cover would be, you know, Roman philosophers. But I don't even know if it will get that far because we might get so much just from everything else that Rome might actually have to go into season four. Uh, but we'll we'll play it by ear and see how it goes. Uh, because, again, I want to make this accessible, but I do want to start going in deeper. Now, today, the two that I want to talk about um, I want to talk about two different ones, uh, mainly because they will inform a lot of the discussions we'll have in later seasons. Uh, the first one I want to talk about a little bit is Roland Barthes, uh, B-A-R-T-H-E-S. He is a French, he's considered a, a literary philosopher, a literary theorist. And as a literary philosopher, he wouldn't be someone you would normally study in a philosophy course. But one of the things about the 20th century and one of the things about uh, the way I've always studied philosophy and literature is, I've, as I've said before, I've never seen them as separate disciplines completely. Yes, they have different levels of focus, uh, different methodologies, but they're still both an analysis of the world just from different perspectives and everything about the world, uh, relationships, how we know what we know, what's true. You know, all of these things are issues to both philosophy and literature. And so you will see me blending them a lot. I have in the past and I will continue to. So Roland Barthes is not generally considered a philosopher, but his ideas have a lot to do with philosophy. And the one I want to talk about today is the idea of the photograph, and especially the photograph for the purposes of news. Now, when you have a photograph, um, he talks about the fact that there's uh, denotative meaning and connotative meaning. And connotation and denotation, really, you have with just about anything you're trying to interpret. And the reason for this is denotation is the dictionary, you know, the, the, the straight out what it is, uh, whereas the connotation is how it's received. It's whether it's seen as a positive or negative thing. And I want to use for my example, this discussion, a picture of a full coffee cup. Um, now, the picture itself, uh, without any captioning, without any... Um, you know, without any hints of what the you should be taking from it, would be the denotative message of the picture, you know. And the ability to understand that would obviously depend on 
Do you come from a culture where they drink coffee? Uh, if you didn't, if you come from a culture that had never seen coffee, it would actually be a picture that may have no meaning to you whatsoever, or it might have a meaning of, okay, this is vaguely some liquid, but you wouldn't, you know, un unless you have an understanding, uh, the denotative uh, meaning of it might not be there. But for the sake of argument, let's say everyone that sees the picture knows what a coffee cup is. The trouble starts to get in when you get to the connotative meaning of it. Because there are lots of things, um, even before you add any captions, uh, that would change your uh, feeling towards it. It would change the connotative meaning of something. For example, if your society, you know, as I said, was a society that didn't have coffee. Let's say you go into, you know, uh, some society where coffee had never been introduced. Uh, you're not going to have much association with that. If you come from a society where most people drink coffee and it's seen as a very popular thing, you know, the society is going to have the connotative meaning that this is a positive thing, this cup of coffee. Now, you're also going to have, you know, a step down from that, your immediate group. How do they feel about it? Maybe you're the member of a coffee drinkers club, or maybe you're the member of a we hate coffee club, we're the tea drinkers. So this is also going to, you know, on, on another level, give you the connotative meaning that you're going to get from looking at that picture. And then you jump down to the personal level. You know, on the personal level, you may love coffee or you may hate coffee, and that's going to color your perception of, you know, whether this is a positive picture or not. If you love coffee and you see the picture of a nice, you know, steaming cup of coffee, it's going to be a positive connotation to you. If you think coffee is the most disgusting thing on the planet, it's going to be a negative connotation. If you have never tried it, you know what it is, but you've never actually tried it, it's, it's probably going to be neither positive or negative um, because you're not going to have connotative meaning associated with this. Now, this is all before you start captioning pictures. Uh, and he talks about the fact of captioning a picture can completely change the connotative meaning. While the cup of coffee is still the denotative meaning of a cup of coffee, you might have um, the caption with the cup of coffee, uh, you know, the, the perfect start to your day. You know, this sets up a positive connotation of the picture. This sets it up as, you know, almost like an advertisement, something you want to try. Or you might see an article or see a caption on the picture that says, you know, is your morning routine trying to kill you? Or is this, you know, uh, a secret or is this, you know, some hidden poison or is this, you know, shortening your life? Things like that are going to create a negative connotation. Now, you may, you know, go along with that and be swayed by that, or you may rebel against that. Because if you're, you know, someone who's a hardcore coffee drinker and you refuse to ever see anything could be wrong with it, you might, you know, look at that caption of it being, you know, a silent killer or, you know, something that's going to kill you and say, ah, this is just, you know, BS. This is just people trying to spread a message. If you're someone who already hates coffee, uh, that 
will be something that almost acts like what it, what would be known as a um, uh, confirmational bias. Aha, I always knew this was bad. Therefore, here's the picture, here's the caption. It proves it. I knew it was right. Coffee is an evil, terrible thing. Um, so just a caption can change the connotative or denotative meaning. But one of the things, too, that can change meaning on something and people don't even realize is that you can have, when you take a picture, um, the person taking the picture decides what to photograph and what not to photograph. And when you're talking about pictures that are being used in a news article, they're definitely going to have some motivation behind what you take a picture of. For example, if you're taking a picture from a battlefield, uh, you're probably not going to take a picture of the flowers and, you know, the, the pretty sunset that's going on, because that's, while that's part of the scene, while that's within the scene, that's not the meaning you're trying to convey. You're probably going to take pictures of, you know, bomb craters or possibly people who have been killed or, you know, uh, heavy equipment like tanks or planes that have been destroyed. Uh, you're going to, there's going to be a choice of what is the meaning you're trying to convey. So one of the things about images, especially images that are taken for a purpose, is there's always a reason behind it. Um, you, you choose what to focus on, you choose what not to focus on. And we've kind of talked about this with some of the other philosophers and talked about this sort of with the, you know, philosophy of the way we see the world. Uh, your your eyes and ears and nose and, you know, sensations are taking in all kinds of different stimulus. And your brain has to decide what is important and what is not. If you're sitting in a room with a person and having a conversation, your focus shifts to the person in the conversation. Even though within the room you still have the color of the walls, the, you know, lighting fixtures, the furniture, the, you know, the type of floor you have, any kind of, you know, all of these things are going to be tuned out into the background. Um, you're going to be focused, you have to focus on what you feel are the important parts. And this is essential for humans to be able to process information. You have to be able to sift through and figure out what's important and what to pay attention to and figure out what's inconsequential, at least at the moment, and what you can ignore. Uh, otherwise, you'd be overwhelmed with sensation. So just the act of taking a picture, especially if you're using it in news or you're using it in advertising or anything like that, there's always going to be a focus from the start that is going to guide you towards what connotation you should be getting out of it um, by what they take. And again, then you throw captions on there, that's also going to change it. Uh, also using different filters. You know, if you take the picture going back to the cup of coffee and you have, you know, brightly lit and nice vibrant colors in the background and, you know, you, you convey a more positive connotation. If you have it, you know, dark and everything seems kind of ominous, you know, you have... Uh, you know, things in the background that vaguely uh, give you the feeling of death or isolation, then you're going to change the connotation of that picture to something negative. 
And the reason that this becomes popular is that, you know, as, or I should say not popular, the reason that this is important, according to Barth, is we have to make decisions uh, about everything uh, we come in contact because everything really is a type of text. And if it's, you know, a, a type of text, that means there's some kind of meaning underneath it. And this is one of the things that he was going for. You know, this uh, this people can see easily when you're talking about a work of literature or a film or a song. But, you know, Barth uh, puts this to um, things like wrestling, a wrestling match, uh, professional wrestling. He puts it to all different types of human activities. And he talks about how they create a text. In the example of the wrestling match, he talks about you have, you know... On the surface, you have the two guys wrestling or two women wrestling, but they always have personas they're representing. You have one that's the force of good, one that's the force of evil, and you have this uh, almost symbolic clash between good and evil. And ultimately, the evil should be overthrown and the good guy should win. You know, people would think of this, you know, on first glance as, well, that's kind of ridiculous and, you know, reading things into it, it's not. But if you were to do that same thing and talk about ancient Greek theater, you know, people would see how that's true. Well, there's really, you know, just a level of uh, stylistic level difference between theater and something like a wrestling match. They're both scripted. You know, wrestling matches are not like other sports contests where you have, you know, your athletes go in there and whoever happens to be the best or the best that day wins the match. Uh, wrestling is very much something that is scripted, which means it's very much conveying all of these different messages. Uh, and like ancient uh, Greek theater, you know, one of the things that the spectators get out of it is you get to see the clash between good and evil and you get the reaffirmation that good is going to win. Now, with wrestling now, uh, when he was writing, this was the earlier days of wrestling, now they tend to have much longer narratives that play out over months or even years sometimes. And, you know, it it becomes just the same thing, but a much more lengthy narrative, uh, almost like a, uh, a soap opera of, you know, uh, of, of sport is, is what it becomes. So... Keeping in mind of thinking of everything as text, um, this is something we've I've been doing in these in this course, talking about the different types of literature, and this is something we're going to be doing as we go back into ancient uh, literatures and philosophies as well. Now, one of the things I'm going to tell you right off the bat is that what I, I get out of these things and what you get out of these things and what everyone gets out of it when you read ancient philosophy or ancient literature is not going to be precisely what people of the time got out of it. And so you have to keep it a, a little bit of an understanding of uh, you're bringing perspectives to it that the people then would not have had um, because we've had more history. The time period is different now. Uh, and, you know, this is another thing that uh, Barth talks about in uh, his essay, The Death of the Author, where you have, um, 
you have the author is the physical person that wrote the work, but you can't always just assume that what that physical person said the work means is what it means. In fact, once the person, the physical person that writes the work or p produces the work is done and that work goes out into the world, it becomes something else completely. And part of that is is sort of building on this idea that, you know, you may have an author intention of one thing, but what the audience brings to it may be completely different. And uh, for some people, this, this may cause a little bit of resistance and say, well, you're going against the wishes of the author. But in truth, this is why things that were written decades ago, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, can still be read and be relevant if they can only have the narrow, specific meaning that the author had in mind when he or she wrote it or when he or she produced the work, then it's going to be something that can only reach a limited audience and will have a very short shelf life. Um, people might read it out of curiosity, but it's not going to be something that will necessarily, you know, 200, 300, 500 years later, 1,000 years later, somebody can read it or watch it and get, you know, an experience that's meaningful to them. So Barth kind of removes the author from uh, the equation. Uh, he just, the physical person uh, does not sum up what the work is. The work is something different than the person who produced it. And another way you can think about it is when you read a work, you know, the narrator and the author are never 100% the same person, and sometimes they're not even close to the same person. Sometimes the, the author uses the narrator, which is the voice telling the story. The narrator may be someone that the author despises. Uh, the narrator may be, you know, of a different gender, of a different uh, religious, ethnic group, of a different time period. You know, uh, when uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, uh, he wasn't living in Middle Earth and, you know, the time of wizards and orcs and all of these things. Uh, those, those are things that the narrator knows, things that the narrator is describing and experiencing. Tolkien is the physical human being who wrote this stuff down. And so there is a difference between the two. And separating these two is, is one of the things that you open up works to multiple analysis. It's where you open up works to have uh, relevance way beyond their limited scope and limited time period. You know, you can almost have, you can probably have as many interpretations as a, of a work as you have people who read the work, because they're all bringing their own biography. They're all reading, bringing in things that they've, you know, read before or seen before or felt or experienced. So he's important to keep in mind as we go in through the other seasons. And this is, again, something that kind of tints things because, you know, the people hearing the ancient Chinese philosophy or the ancient Chinese literature or the Indian literature or philosophy, they wouldn't have access to that way of looking at it. So you always have to remember all the information you take in is going to be tinted towards your experiences. Uh, if, if you think about it too, um, 
you can probably envision uh, sometimes you'll watch a movie that you've seen many times and sometimes you're really enjoying it when you're watching it and sometimes you're like, eh, I'm not in the mood for this. This isn't really doing anything for me and you'll turn the movie off or go do something else. And that's because you're at a different place. You've had different experiences since the last time you've seen it. Maybe you've had a good day. You're in the mood for the movie. Maybe you've had a bad day and you can't focus on the movie. You know, all of these things play into, into account. And so, you know, this opens up literature to have a lot more meaning. When you read something one day, you might get this meaning out of it. Ten years later, twenty years later, you read the same work. You may read it, you're probably going to read it with very different eyes. You know, reading about uh, a character who's, uh, you know, 50 years old when you're 20 is not going to be the same experience of then being 50 years old and reading about that character again. You're probably going to have a different perspective on the things they've said and the things they've seen. Okay, I want to jump over to a different thinker, um, Kars. Kars wrote uh, a book called Finite and Infinite Games, and it deals with game theory. Now, if you look up game theory, a lot of it has to do with a lot of what you'll find is talking about how to make video games and things like that. And that is a part of what he's talking about, but it's he's talking about game theory as it applies to life in general. And he distinguishes between two different kinds of games. There are finite games which have definite boundaries, both in time, both in space. Uh, they have rules that are agreed upon uh, by both parties. Both parties agree to play. And the goal of a finite game is to win the game. Uh, that's, that's why you're playing. You put one team or one individual against another, and you see who wins the game. So it's it's something that is set up to have a winner. It's set up within, you know, specific boundaries. And the game is over when both sides have agreed on who is the winner. Uh, you know, he talk, Kars talks about the fact that you can't have uh, a winner if the sides, if the players don't agree on the outcome. Uh, you have something that's up in the air. If the other uh, you know, the spectators agree on the outcome or the officials agree on it, but the players don't agree on it, then the game is not actually over and it's not really decisive. Um, so there has to be a certain amount of agreement in order for finite games to occur. Infinite games also require uh, people to participate, but infinite games have a different goal. The goal of a finite game is to win. The goal of an infinite game is to keep playing. You know, you your your rules of this game are you're going to try to keep this game going as long as you can. And think about, you know, finite games as something like, or infinite games, I should say, as something like a relationship, a friendship. You know, the goal of a friendship is not to win. Which friend wins? That's That's not a goal of a friendship. You might have finite games within the friendship where you you know, have contests with each other to see who wins that game. Um, you know, the, whether it's a basketball game, whether it's a board game, you know, you, you might have those kind of finite games within an infinite game. Um, but an infinite game, the goal of the infinite game is to keep it going on for as long as possible. Uh, 
ideally you would keep it going on forever, but obviously, you know, there are natural limits to humans. Eventually you're going to die, but the, the goal is to keep it going. So when you have infinite games, you're always trying to keep the players engaged. You're trying to keep the people engaged in what's going on. And it requires a lot of back and forth. And a lot of times it requires flat out the players saying, okay, we've been playing by these rules. This is going nowhere. So now we're going to change the rules and we're going to play by these rules. It doesn't always occur that way. Sometimes they keep the same rules. But again, the, the infinite game has a lot more flexibility because it has a very different goal. Um, you know, think about, uh, you know, a comparison of the two. A finite game would be a match between two teams in the NFL. Um, that's a finite game. The NFL itself would be an example of an infinite game. The goal of the NFL is to keep having football seasons, to keep having more games, to keep, you know, people engaged in enjoying playing and watching football. Um, so that's a, the NFL would be an example of an infinite game. A particular game, you know, between two teams in the NFL would be a finite game. Okay, this also, you know, is something you should keep in the back of your head as we're going into the other philosophies in the ancient times, because, you know, as we go into the different thinkers, you're going to see some of the things they're talking about are dealing more with, you know, how do we accomplish this goal? How do we get from here to here? And when it's something like that, what they're really trying to set up is a finite game so they can get to the end point. Uh, when the philosophers are trying to set up, you know, rules to guide you through life or rules to guide you through thinking or rules to guide you through analysis. These are more infinite games that they're setting up. They're games that they're setting up with the idea of the game will keep evolving and to keep people interested and to keep things relevant. You know, if people don't evolve the game, don't evolve the thinking, eventually it becomes outdated. You know, if your, uh, your game is to, you know, keep stagecoaches going, well, technology develops beyond stagecoaches to where you've got cars, where you've got planes, where you've got helicopters and, you know, trains. And now, you know, the stagecoach game is not going to keep going. That was what started out as an infinite game, but because of circumstances, because of time, because of technology, that game changes. Uh, so, I'm going to break off from there uh, for there for this season. And like I said, next season, I am going to go into um, ancient Chinese and uh, philosophy and literature first. And we're going to move around the ancient traditions from there. Um, but I did want to give you a good sampling of, you know, 20th and 21st century a little bit uh, to kind of give you a, a general overview of all of philosophy and literature. Not, I shouldn't say all large parts of it, uh, so that as we go into the more in-depth, uh, you won't feel so overwhelmed. And I really do recommend if you're just starting this, um, before you jump into season three, unless you have a background in philosophy and literature, I do recommend you go back and listen to the first two seasons first, and then jump into them. Uh, these podcasts are not 
limited in time. I have no interest or, you know, plans on pulling them down. They're not, you're not charged for them. So, you know, go through them at whatever pace uh, you get things out of it. And feel free, especially in the first two seasons, to skip around a little bit and listen to the ones you're interested to in first. Uh, but then you might find that, well, okay, you, we've talked a little bit about something else that seemed a little interesting. We mentioned it in one episode, so I'll, maybe I'll go back and listen to that episode too. You know, the goal of this podcast is to open doors for you, to, to open new ways of thinking that you may not have thought about, to open new experiences. And, you know, it's up to the listener to kind of do the work. Uh, I can only open these doors. You have to choose whether you want to go through the doors or not. Uh, also know that I am not, even even as this goes on and it gets more in-depth, I, I will never make the claim that this is the end-all and be-all that you can do with any of these topics. I always recommend reading more. I always recommend listening to other uh, lecturers who are lecturing on the same topic because they're going to bring different perspectives. And, and this episode that I just did, that's part of what I was trying to get at uh, also, is that you are getting uh, philosophy and literature through the lens that I've experienced it, through the things I've seen. Um, that doesn't completely explain the fields. No one person could ever do that. Um, anybody that thinks they know everything about a, even one particular field is either a liar or a fool. Um, there's always more to know. Uh, things move on. Thing, you know, different experiences will open new doors for it. So really, you know, as you're going through these and listening to them, think about the fact that this is what we're doing here. We're opening doors, uh, getting, you know, expanding you into ideas that you may not have been exposed to. And you're not going to like all of the ideas. I don't like all of the ideas. I think some of the philosophers and writers are way off base. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. This isn't something where, you know, like a like a a religion where I'm saying you have to accept all of this on faith and you have to believe all of this is 100% true. Because when you get into philosophy and literature, you're going to find there's going to be people you agree with a lot and people you disagree with a lot. And the people that you agree with, you're still going to have points within them that you're going to say, yeah, but that point over there, I don't quite buy that. And people you disagree with, you might find a point that you say, you know, overall, I think their analysis is way off, but this one particular point really does seem to be, you know, correct, seems to be on point. So, okay. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. I, and I look forward to starting season three and jumping into some more ancient philosophy and ancient literature. And most of the ancient literature will be poetry because prose is a fairly new invention in, in the world of literature. Okay, everybody have a good night.